Welcome to The Gangster, book six in the Galactic Football League series. Written and performed by Scott Sigler, The Gangster is suitable for ages 12 and up and contains graphic violence. The Gangster is also available as a signed, numbered, limited edition hardcover while supplies last. To order, go to scottsigler.com slash store. Hello, junkies. Man, oh man, oh man. So much Sigler stank smeared all about your ears. Not only is Mount Fitzroy, the sequel to Earthcore, available at audible.com, but now the gangster is there as well. Unabridged, full length, no commercials, and none of my gibbery jabbery that you are listening to right now. You can find the link for the gangster audiobook over at scottsigler.com slash the gangster, one word, and it's also available on ebook now. So now we have it out in audiobook, have it out in ebook, we have it in the podcast. The hardcover is still in process. There is you still have time to pre-order that bad boy. Again, that link is also at scottsigler.com slash the gangster. When those are gone, those are gone forever. So go snag one if you want them. And even though the gangster just, just, just came out at Audible, it already has 60 ratings and reviews at the time I record this. Boom! Mount Fitzroy just shot past 1,500 reviews. Now the gangster is 60 and counting. I thank you all. You're all so freaking fantastic. So get the over to Audible and review both of them if you have not already. It helps with the cause of Siglerism just a ton. We're in a data-driven economy, a data-driven market, and the more positivity we get in these books, the more people who don't know who I am yet get to see these books. While you're there, grab a brew, sit back, post a rating and review for The Rookie and all the GFL books. It only takes a couple of minutes. Uh, The Rookie, that golden oldie, has 832 reviews. So now, I am on a mission to get that bad boy up over 1,000. Do your part and I salute you. General Siglerissimo gives you the wartime salute. All right, let's get you caught up on the gangster. And then we're going to go flip some pancakes. Previously on The Gangster. After the attack in New York City, Quentin and Becca find themselves in a family way. What are they going to do about it? And Greedock the Splithead is beset on all sides by enemies both real and imagined. How does a sentient like him stay safe at night? Find out next on The Gangster, episode number 12. The Vault Greedock felt the years. The day was almost over, yet there was still business to be done. He walked down the halls of the Kraken's building, careful to stay perfectly upright, to not let his fatigue show. Massal walked beside him. One more order to give, then Greedock could finally rest for the night. You are certain of those numbers? Yes, Shemekath, Massal said. Mr. Osborne's revenue is 15% below your quota. 15%. First, Osborne acquired his own upper-tier team, without Greedock's permission, and now he was falling short. Perhaps those two things were directly related. Not everyone could simultaneously run a Tier 1 franchise and a complex criminal organization. Greedock and Massal reached the end of the hall, stood before a thick, rounded rectangle of burnished metal. 
Smooth and flats, no knob, no handle, no window. Most doors in the Kraken's building were normal doors, but not this one. This one opened into Greedock's personal quarters. Inform Osborne his numbers must increase, the leader said. I do not establish quotas so that they can be ignored. Missal tapped Data into his palm up. Yes, Yamakath. Will there be anything else this evening? No, you may go. Masal headed down the hall. One of the many attempts on Greedock's life had come while he was sleeping. Since then, he made sure that no one could get to him at night. Now alone, Greedock pressed his pedipal palm to the door. He heard and felt heavy internal bars sliding free. The hatch was a relic from the takeover, obtained from the wreck of the quith heavy cruiser Devastator. That ship had not lived up to its name. Kratorakians had swarmed a quith battleship, the Glorious Violence, then turned that vessel's guns on the Devastator, blowing the cruiser in half on the third salvo. Over 2,000 quith died in a matter of moments. For years, the twisted wreck floated through the void. Greedock commissioned a salvage crew to bring him a hatch from the ship, then had it installed as the entrance to his armored room. The meter-thick titanium alloy hatch was impervious to small arms fire and could easily withstand most explosives. While a laser could penetrate it, given enough time, the tiny crystal balls embedded throughout the metal would deflect and refract the beam, slowing the process and making it potentially lethal to the party trying to burn through. Greedock pushed. Even perfectly balanced as the hatch was, he felt its massive weight. He stepped into his room. Attached to the inside of the hatch was a metal wheel almost as wide as Greedock was tall. He pushed the hatch shut. He gripped the wheel, waiting a moment for the surface's biosensors to confirm his identity and unlock the internal mechanism. He rotated the wheel, heard the thick titanium crystal bars slide into their wall housings. Turning the wheel to its limit disconnected all electronic access. Once he closed the door, it could only be opened manually, from the inside, only by him, and only if he was alive. The room held two weeks' worth of food, water, and stored air. Shock plates and emergency anti-grab batteries ensured the room would maintain physical integrity and standard inertia. Even if a bomb brought down the entire Kraken's building, Greedock would survive. So many sentients wanted him dead. They wanted to take his empire, to remove him as a threat, to get revenge. Motivations for his untimely demise were as countless as the stars themselves. This room was the one place in the universe where he felt secure. He kept the room intentionally plain and simple. The webbing where he slept, the jewelry cabinet where he kept his personal baubles, a few small jewel-encrusted trinkets to hold the final solidity of lesser underlings that Greedock remembered fondly but weren't important enough to show off to others. His real treasures were kept in his chamber so that others could see the talismans of his wealth and power. This room was for sleep and little else. With the eyes of the worlds no longer upon him, Greedock sagged. Such a long day. On top of someone trying to murder his quarterback, and his quarterback being an insolent ass that deserved to die, 
Stedmar Osborne wasn't living up to expectations. Osborne had missed quota for the second quarter in a row. He had yet to fully eliminate the Giovannis, who were mounting a comeback to claim the Purist Nation drug distribution network that had once been theirs. Greedock felt surrounded by idiots and incompetence. Aside from Assal and, maybe, Virac, Greedock could count on no one to do their job correctly. His old head wound ached. He needed sleep. He shuffled to the jewelry cabinet that took up an entire wall, started peeling off his bracelets, necklaces, and rings, putting each treasure back in its proper place. Naked of his jewelry, the wall mirror showed him his worst fear, an exhausted, sentient, far past middle age, on the edge of elderly. White roots started to show in his jet-black fur. He needed a new dye job. An ever-so-slight haze on his cornea. He could hide that for a few years more, perhaps, but the eye was the window to the soul and indisputable evidence of a leader's advancing years. With age came weakness, or so most sentients thought. Enemies and associates alike would see an opportunity to take what was rightfully his. Greedock knew he would have to become even more vicious, make great spectacle of even the slightest transgression. The economy of the universe revolved around a perception of strength. Death was the only currency that mattered. Greedock was about to remove the patch of false fur that covered the gnarled, fused chitin on his head when his holotank flared to life, on its own, without his order. In the tank, a human face appeared. Gonzaga. I hope we can dispense of the usual, how did you hack your way into my system and get down to business, the human said. You look tired, Greedock. Gonzaga had caught him unawares. Greedock stiffened into a proper, upright posture. You have made a mistake, the leader said. This kind of intrusion will not be tolerated. Masal put out the word that you want to hire me. You'll understand if I opt out of a personal visit where I'm surrounded by your army of goons. Let's get to it. Greedock stopped himself from looking around his room. Could Gonzaga get to him in here? No, that was impossible. But hacking into Greedock's personal communications was also supposed to be impossible. Don't worry, the human said. If I wanted you dead, you'd be dead. I've had you in my scope more than once. A flutter of fear. An emotion Greedock felt so rarely he almost didn't recognize it in time to stop his cornea from coloring pink. Gonzaga had once been an elite assassin for the purest nation. Then, a hitman for hire. The human had a gift for ending lives. The same holds true for you, Greedock said. If you think I do not know where you go, who you see, and— I've spotted most of the punks you have tracking me, but I'm smart enough to know I didn't see them all. You let me live because I'm of use to you. I protect Barnes, and more importantly, I protect his sister, keeping her from falling into the hands of Lonnie, Ogawa, or anyone else. I can get to you, you can get to me, blah, blah, blah. Can we please dispense with the posturing and talk business? A rather casual way of saying the two sentients held the power of life and death over each other. But in business, sometimes mutual respect took on strange forms. Agreed, Greedock said. Let us talk. 
I assume you believe I was behind the attempt on Barnes's life? Gonzaga's brow furrowed. No, I don't think so. Why not? Because he's still alive. If it had been your doing, he'd be dead. A compliment. Such a shame Gonzaga insisted on being an independent agent. He would have made a good permanent addition to Greedock's organization. I want to hire you to investigate this attack. Gonzaga snorted. No chance. I will pay you five times what Barnes is paying you, and you may continue to draw your usual fees from him. It's called a conflict of interest, Gonzaga said. I work for Barnes. I protect Janine. No matter what you offer, Greedy, I will not take a dime from you. Greedock hated that nickname. He looked for any tells that might reveal Gonzaga was holding out for even more money. There were none. Could it really be that this human did not have a price? Besides, you get me for free on this one, Gonzaga said. We both want to keep Barnes alive. The best way to do that is find out who wants him dead and eliminate that problem. Greedock did want to keep Barnes alive, hopefully give the quarterback enough time to find a cure for his arm injury. But at the moment, this situation was not about football. It was about discovering who had dared to attack Greedock's property. We shall share information, the leader said. But when we find out who is responsible, you allow me to deal with that party. Agreed? Gonzaga hesitated, then nodded. Agreed. I'll stand aside while you handle the messy part. Let's start with who you already have working on this. Anyone I'd know? If I cross paths with your people, I don't want there to be trouble. A logical point. Wakan Reed, Greedock said. A trusted underling. Let him know he and I are on the same side. I will, Greedock said. Who do you think perpetrated this attack? J.T. Manis is a likely suspect, Gonzaga said. You've beat Jupiter two Galaxy Bowls in a row. He might want to do something off the field so that he can win on it. Possible? That petty sentient cannot abide that I have denied him the league title on multiple occasions. It might have been Gloria Ogawa, Gonzaga said. Her Wolfpack has missed the playoffs by one game the last two years, and both years they lost INF. And she'll never forget how close she was to having John Tweedy on her team. She'd love to get back at you for that. Ogawa was behind the assassination of Bobby Adronik, the first quarterback to lead Ionath to a GFL title. Greedock couldn't prove she'd ordered the hit, but everyone knew it had been her. She'd had one Kraken's quarterback killed, so why not a second? Someday, Greedock would have that woman on a key dinner table. He would watch as the key he'd starved for weeks feasted on Ogawa's living flesh. Barnes also has Volani's number, Gonzaga said. What's his record against her orbiting death? Five wins, one loss. And we've knocked Volani out of the playoffs each of the last two years. And I'm guessing she's still pissed you stopped her from getting her mitts on Jew Tweedy. If we are to share information, Gonzaga, tell me facts I do not already know. The human huffed out a laugh. Fair point. I guess the only other owner I'd suspect is Stedmar Osborne. Osborne. His name kept coming up. He is in my organization, Greedock said. 
Why would he target the assets of his Shamakath? Maybe because criminals are never content being the underling. Or maybe because he wants to win. You beat his team in the playoffs. Maybe he thinks he'll never beat you as long as you have Barnes. I've had run-ins with Osborne. He is a very competitive guy. Competitive, yes. But Barnes had played for Osborne's McCovey Raiders. Osborne had discovered Barnes, plucked him from a life of indentured servitude, and put him on the gridiron. For that, Barnes held Osborne in great esteem, and the opposite held true as well. Barnes had delivered Osborne a pair of PNFL titles. Stedmar Osborne was arguably the quarterback's biggest fan. It is not Osborne, Greedock said. Of that, I am certain. He thought of Wakhan Reed's strange theory. Barnes helped Yolanda Davenport discover that Yitzhak Goldman was working with the Guild, Greedock said. Do you think it is possible that the Guild is behind the attack at Randall Hospital? Perhaps they wish to send a message to anyone who would conspire against them. Gonzaga glanced off, thinking, then nodded, perhaps settling some internal argument. It's possible, he said. But if the Guild is behind the attack, it might not be because of Goldman. Have you heard the rumors about an intergalactic invasion fleet? Greedock thought of George Starcher's appearance on Fringe broadcasts. Why would Gonzaga bring up such nonsense? Conspiracy theories and paranoia, Greedock said. You do not actually believe a mysterious alien fleet is crossing between galaxies to kill us all, do you? Gonzaga smiled slightly. Don't assume it's impossible to cross between galaxies. The way he said that, with such calm confidence, why would someone as smart as Gonzaga believe such a thing? Faster than light travel required the gravity wells that planets provided. No planets between the galaxies meant no FTL, and with the distances involved, not even a generation ship that lasted for tens of thousands of years could cross such a span. Anyway, Gonzaga said, what I believe doesn't matter. What matters is what the Guild believes. He wasn't playing games. Whatever his theory, he'd clearly given it much thought. I am listening. Go on. The human took in a breath, held it, perhaps still debating if he should share his thoughts, then let that breath out slow. All right, fine. In my line of work, I talk to a lot of people. I hear a lot of things. Some of those things are more sane than others, some way nuttier. But for the sake of argument, let's assume the Zoroastrian Guild not only believes this fleet is coming, but thinks it is the miracle they've been looking for. The Bats have the vast majority of warships in the Milky Way, and they control more territory than anyone else. So if the invasion fleet shows up, the Bats have to lead the fight against it. From that perspective, an invasion fleet would severely weaken, if not outright destroy, the Kretorakian military. The Guild's long-term goal has always been to break the Bat's dominance, to let all systems return to self-rule, right? I've never believed that, Greedock said. Their altruistic goal is merely a cover story. They want money and power, just like everyone else. Gonzaga grinned. What a surprise that you would think that. Whatever the Guild's motivations, let's assume they believe this invasion is coming 
and they think it will benefit them in a big way. The invasion has a better chance of success if the various Milky Way governments are fighting amongst themselves, right? Greedock grew tired of the rhetorical questions. Get to your point, Gonzaga. The Guild wants us at each other's throats because it strains the resources of the Kretorakian Empire, because it shows the Empire can't control things, that it needs to be overthrown. What if the Guild thinks that Barnes is some kind of some kind of unifier, that he can bring sentience together so all the systems unite with the Empire to fight the invasion instead of the Empire going alone, taking the brunt of the damage? Puzzle pieces clicked home. Gonzaga was guessing, trying to make sense of things, but there was information he clearly didn't have, information that Greedock did have. Reed had said the Vermada was killing sentients who had achieved, how would he describe it? Ah, yes, massive cross-species celebrity. Greedock wasn't sure about the existence of the Vermada, and the invasion fleet remained a ludicrous concept, but wars had been started for far more irrational reasons. When it came to justifying any action, any type of violence, reality didn't matter. Belief did. Greedock had learned long ago to never underestimate stupidity in the masses. The Guild slash Ramada wanted Quentin Barnes dead because they thought he could rally the galaxy to help the Bats fight an alien invasion fleet? Far-fetched, but it was worth pursuing. This is all useless conjecture, Greedock said. First, we discover who ordered the attack. Then we learn why. To find that out, we need to know who knew Barnes was going to Earth a point that bothered Greedock to no end. He hadn't known Barnes was going to Earth, but the assassins had. You knew, Gonzaga, as did Choto, Montaigne, and obviously Barnes himself. Could any of you have somehow leaked the information? The human shook his head. Not on my watch. I followed every precaution. Who else had knowledge of the trip? Supposedly, the only other sentients who knew ahead of time were Doc Anagati, Fros, and Wycor the Aware. Fros, who should have informed Greedock of the medical visit. Greedock would take that up with the commissioner at a later time. The commissioner and Wycor knew, Greedock said, which means that Liba the Gorgeous knew as well. Fred nodded. I feel the same way. As for the hospital staff, Barnes's appointment was in the hospital computers under a false name. As far as I can tell, no one there but Ganagati knew that he was coming until he arrived. There probably wasn't enough time to get word out to a hit team. And yet the hit team knew he was there. I have sources just as you do, Gonzaga. What do you know about the woman who saved the lives of Barnes, Montaigne, and Choto? If Gonzaga was surprised that Greedock knew about the woman, the human didn't show it. I know I'm glad she was there. Other than that... There were no visuals of her face. She left no fingerprints, no DNA of any kind. She was a pro's pro. Whoever she works for, that sentient was looking out for our boy. Someone had hired the assassins. Someone else had hired the protector. So many variables, so little information. Absolutely maddening. Our partnership, however brief it may be, will be interesting. Despite our differences, it is always nice to work with a professional. 
Perhaps someday, Greedock would hire a professional taxidermist so that he could have Gonzaga's body stuffed. The feeling is mutual, Greedock. Gonzaga nodded once, then vanished from the holotank. Greedock sagged again. He looked to the corner webbing, where he took his few hours of sleep every night. He longed for the comfortable straps, for the bliss of those precious moments where he wasn't watching his back, wasn't trying to figure out how to expand his influence. Sleep, though, would have to wait a little while longer. There was work to be done. Computer! Yes, Greedock? Wake Massal the Efficient. Send him to my quarters at once. In the climate-ravaged world of 2072, the city of Pura stands as a miraculous green haven. Pura is a geoengineered paradise that protects its fortunate residents from the global catastrophes of heat domes, fires, floods, and droughts. In a time when the world outside is unsafe, it's vital for Pura's existence that people rally behind the purpose of the city, and Demetria Lopez, head of the city's public relations, tirelessly promotes its idyllic image. But when she stumbles on a dark secret that, if exposed, would be the downfall of Pura's existence, she must decide who and what she's willing to protect. From Wondery, the makers of Academy and Dr. Death, The Last City stars actors Ray Seahorn, Jeannie Tirado, and Maury Sterling. Follow The Last City on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge all episodes of The Last City early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery+. Plus. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz. And how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts. Book Three, The Future. The Big Day. Quentin waited in a hospitality suite absently munching broccoli from the vegetable tray left by the facility's catering staff. He hoped his family would understand. He hoped they wouldn't judge him for the short notice, for rushing them to earth. The room's only door opened. Through it came Ma Tweedy, John, Jew, and Janine. Quentin held his breath. Would Ma be mad? Her wrinkled face broke into a big smile. Oh, my baby boy, she said. Come give Ma a hug. He walked to her, relief coursing through him. He bent, hugged her carefully so as not to hurt her. She was so small, barely bigger than a quith leader. Congratulations, she said. You and Rebecca will be very happy together. She kissed his cheek three times fast. Mwah, mwah, mwah. I'm so stinking proud of you. Emotions welled up, and, for once, he didn't fight to hold them back. 
to hear she was proud of him, it moved his soul. Congrats, bro-face, Jew said, and thumped Quentin on the shoulder. Gonna be a heck of a party. Janine ran in, hugged Quentin hard. I am tickled to death, little brother, she said. Becca is my sister-in-law. This is awesome. Janine's opinion mattered to him, as did Jew's. But there was one opinion that, in this situation, mattered most of all. Quentin faced John Tweedy. John had proposed to Becca at a Krakens game in front of 185,000 fans, as well as the hundreds of millions more who watched the broadcast when it spread through the stars. Because of the situation, the massive viewership, Becca had said yes when she hadn't actually wanted to marry John. Was John really over that? Was he over Becca? I have to know the truth, Quentin said to him. Are you all right with this? John didn't smile. He stared hard. I can't believe you do this to me, he said. After all we've been through, I just can't believe it. You're actually marrying Becca? Quentin's heart sank. He'd been through so much with John. John was his friend, his teammate, his brother. John was family. That he would be hurt by this, angered by it, Quentin couldn't stand the thought of upsetting the man. Look, John, Quentin said, Becca and I falling in love wasn't something we planned or even thought possible. It just... His voice trailed off at the sight of the message scrolling across John's forehead. Ha ha ha, you fool. Ha 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 ha. John grinned. I got you this time, bro. Jonathan, Ma said. She stood on tiptoe and flicked John's earlobe. Ow! The muscled linebacker cupped his ear, his face as sad as that of a puppy who had just been disciplined. Ma, that hurt! That wasn't funny, Jonathan. It was mean, Ma said. Of course Quentin is sensitive about your feelings. Quentin had to agree, but he was more relieved than hurt. I thought it was funny, John said. Double mega funny, Jew said. With the speed of a legendary gunfighter, Ma turned and flicked Jew's ear. Quentin heard the loud thwap, couldn't help but flinch. Ma, ow, Jew said, covering his ear. Quit flicking us! Then both of you stop acting like jackasses, Ma said. This is a big day for your brother. John had made a joke of it, but he hadn't actually answered Quentin's question. Quentin needed to know, for real, how his brother felt. John, tell me the truth. You're all right with this? John put an arm around Janine, pulled her close. Hell yeah, he said. It's great. You and Becca are as thick as leaves, you know? Like two peas in a cod's belly. Trust me, bro. I'm super happy with the way things turned out. He kissed Janine on top of her head. She smiled wide. Mega super happy. She was a tall woman, yet with John's massive arm around her, she looked like a toy. Thank you for sending Fred to bring us to your wedding, Janine said. He was amazing. I felt like I was in a spy movie. He picked us up in the middle of the night. We changed cars three times before he dropped us off at the spaceport. Fred had skills Quentin could never hope to possess. What a blessing it was to have friends like that man. Ma took Quentin's right hand. She wasn't bothered by the missing pinky or by the stub left behind. Her own hands looked so small compared to his. I've been so worried about you, she said. 
You should have sent your mother a message the moment you were safe after that attack. She was right. Quentin couldn't deny it. Of course Ma had seen the news coverage. Of course she'd worried. Sorry, Ma, he said. I wasn't thinking. She seemed to study him. Or was she glaring? With her wrinkled face and constantly squinted eyes, it was hard to tell. All right, she said finally. Apology accepted. John put his arm around Quentin's shoulder, gave Quentin an excited shake. We're going to find out who attacked you, John said. Going to hurt him. Lambaste him, Juice said. Cut him into teeny bits and then also kill them. Fricassee the bastards, John said. Smash the stupid boogers into paste, Juice said. Shuck them, John said. Shuck them in their shucking shuckers. Ma clapped her small hands one time, a sound as sharp as a gunshot. Jonathan! Julius! Language! Both men looked down at their mother. Sorry, Ma. Ma smiled up at Quentin. Now it's time you told us the rest. Is it a boy or is it a girl? Quentin leaned back, shocked. How did you know? Did Fred tell you? He wasn't supposed to. John, Jew, and Janine glanced at each other, their expressions of surprise shifting into wide grins. Honestly, Quentin, Ma said, for someone who is so smart on a football field, sometimes you are dense beyond measure. I've been around a long time. You're not the kind of man who would rush a wedding unless there was a reason. His face felt hot. He thought of Chodo talking about a shot-put wedding. Ma, we were engaged first. Honest. Oh, stop, Ma said. If you think I'm disappointed about being a grandmother, you've taken too many hits to the head. You and Becca love each other. That's all that matters. I'm thrilled, Quentin. So thrilled. Sometimes, the strangest things overwhelmed him. The way Ma talked about Becca and the baby, Quentin knew Ma would sound exactly the same if she was talking about the wife and child of John or Jew. Ma considered Quentin her son just as much as she did her two biological children. Not for the first time, and probably not for the last, Quentin wondered what he had done to deserve such love. We just found out she's pregnant, he said. We don't know if it's a boy or a girl. John grinned wide. A bun in the oven. Good to know your plumbing works, bro. Ma reached up to flick his ear, but John leaned away, still smiling. Janine hugged Quentin, then Jew did the same. Enough with the happy, Ma said. We need to talk about something just as important. I want to know who attacked you. Was it that furry little punk who passes himself off as a team owner? She hadn't used Greedock's name. She didn't need to. We don't know if it was him, Quentin said. Ma crossed her arms. It was him. I know it. That dirty little shucker came at my family. Jew smirked. Carol, language! She gave a backhand slap so fast and accurate, Jew didn't have time to move away. He rubbed his cheek. Ma, what the heck? You picked the wrong time to sass me, Julius, she said. Quentin, you can tell your mother. Was it Greedock? Answer me. This wasn't something Quentin wanted to think about. Not today. I have it covered, he said. Trust me, Ma. Things will be fine. 
Ma made a hmm noise, as much malice in that drawn-out syllable as there was in John and Jew's elaborate threats. Jew gestured to the walls and ceiling, indicating more than just the room in which they stood. Bro, did you rent the whole place? I had to, Quentin said. It was the only way to guarantee security. We can't take any chances right now. Hmm, Ma said. Jew shook his head. Wow, bro. Big mega money. Must be nice. I gotta get me some of that. If there's any cap space left, that is. Cap space. Was he making reference to Quentin's contract? Was Jew jealous? He was the best running back in the GFL, yet had earned league minimum since he had joined the Krakens. Had Jew been paid what he was worth, he would have made 10, 20, maybe even 30 million more. But then again, making league minimum was better than being dead, which is exactly what Jew would have been if Greedock hadn't saved his ass from Anna Volani. While Jew couldn't make up for those lost years, he'd soon negotiate a new contract, and he would get his desired payday. He was only 26 years old. Without a doubt, someone was going to invest a ton of cash in Jew Tweedy. Would that someone be Greedock? Or would Greedock try some underhanded trick to get Jew to sign for less than market value, just like he'd done to Quentin? Quentin's fake father experience proved one thing— Greedock the Splithead had no morals. The leader would do whatever it took to tie up a high-quality player. Don't bitch about money, Jew, John said. You're with Danny Lundy now. You're going to get a contract so fat, it's like that lady singing in the coal mine. And Q, it's super double mecha mega dega awesome that you rented the whole place. The Rekka is going to be so happy. Quentin hoped John was right. Fred had worked a miracle. He'd locked up the facility for the afternoon, secretly smuggled Quentin's family here, brought in Becca's parents, as well as Michael Kimberlin, Tara the Freak, and George Starcher. A seemingly impossible set of tasks. When asked how he pulled it off, Fred just smiled and said, Money makes the galaxy spin. Bringing the family and friends here, using multiple trips and vehicles to do so, arranging for the tuxes and the tailors waiting to fit them to the Tweedy Brothers' XXXL dimensions, bringing in the seamstresses who were making Becca's dress, this day was costing a fortune. Fred had asked if Quentin ever looked at Fred's invoices. Quentin did not, and he sure as hell wasn't going to start now. Quentin's palm buzzed. He opened his hand check the message. All right, everyone go get dressed, he said. It's almost game time. You have been listening to The Gangster, book six in the Galactic Football League series, written and narrated by Scott Ziegler. Follow Scott on Instagram and Twitter, where he is at Scott Ziegler, one word, and on Facebook at facebook.com slash Scott Ziegler. For more information on the Galactic Football League series and for more free audiobook podcasts, visit scottsigler.com. The Gangster was directed by A. Sigler, engineered by Steve Rickyberg. Copyright 2020, Empty Set Entertainment. Theme music is the song They're Watching Me by the band Super Weapon. Greetings, adventurers. Today we're excited to introduce you to a new story, Dark Dice, a horror podcast that blurs the line between actual play and audio drama. 
where the story is determined by the roll of the dice. Six adventurers embark on a journey into the ruinous domain of the Nameless God. They will never be the same again. One of the players is not what they seem after a doppelganger, a creature that can assume the form and voice of whatever it kills, infiltrates the team. As the players are picked off and replaced one at a time, can they figure out who the monster is before it's too late? Can you? Here's a quick example of what our show sounds like. The, uh, shambler with the jar of liquid inside of him. Soren Arkwright let loose an arrow that cracked the glass, passing through the spine of the creature. The shambler still managed to maintain its forward momentum, but stumbled as it eagerly tried to bite and swipe at Soren, landing near his feet. As Jeff Goldblum has now joined our cast, Dark Dice is available however you listen to podcasts.